My name is Justin Gage, and you're tuned in to the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions Podcast with your host, Jason Hunter. Hey, welcome to Transmissions. So glad to have you here. Bruce Leischer's name commands respect in the underground world of independent rock. A musician and letterpress artist, he's created album art and bespoke packaging for artists like R.E.M., Stereolab, Camper Van Beethoven, and many more, and created music with the post-punk group Savage Republic, instrumental rock pioneer Scenic, and many other projects. In 2020, Bruce reactivated his Independent Projects record label, which he had originally founded way back in 1980. On this episode, Bruce joins me to discuss his album art creations, his time in the Mojave Desert, the Southwestern dream pop scene of the 1990s, his letterpress origins work with R.E.M., and a lot more. Bruce is a lifer and a true example of sticking to your artistic vision, and I'm thrilled to have him on the show this week, and of course, equally honored to have you tuned in for our conversation. Before we get into it though, a quick plug for the Aquarium Drunkard Patreon page. If you appreciate what we bring to your listening life, you can pledge your support over there and help us continue to bring you thoughtful reflections, radio shows, interviews, essays, mixtapes, lanyap sessions, highlights, record releases, and more. And speaking of record releases, I wanted to mention that The Reckoning, Volume 2 of Aquarium Drunkard and Org Music's Jesus People Music Series is available now. I wrote the liners for it and it's great. It offers a thrilling look at the feral, spirit-driven early days of the psychedelic Christian movement. I highly recommend checking out Jesus People Music Volume 2, The Reckoning. All right, Bruce Leischer here on Transmissions. Thanks so much for being with us. I'll speak with you a little bit more on the other side. I hope you enjoy this conversation.
Hello, Bruce. Hello, Jason. How are you? I'm great. And yourself? Doing fine. So glad to see you. Yeah, it's very good to speak with you. Thanks for taking the time. Of course. Um, where where am I? Where are you calling from today? Where where are you at? So I'm in Bishop, California, which is a small town in the eastern Sierra Nevada mountains, right near the Nevada border, about halfway up California. Nice, nice. Yeah, it's a beautiful area. Uh, I am here in Phoenix, Arizona, is where I taped the podcast. Uh, okay. You you spent a lot of time in Arizona, right? You When did you move yes. out to Sedona? So, um, 1992, we moved out of Los Angeles to Sedona, and then um, we were there for 17 years, and then decided it was time for a change, and uh, so we ended up moving to Bishop here in the Eastern Sierras. Um, and... Yeah, the main reason we chose here was just that my wife Karen is a, a painter and she wanted to paint in the area. So Yeah. Did she paint in Sedona as well? Yeah, she did. She was she had was represented by a couple of different galleries while we were there. Yeah. But, uh, it's it's a beautiful place, Sedona. Uh, yeah, it is. It's I, I wonder though, did you guys when you first moved out there, I don't I don't know exactly what Sedona was like in 1992, but I imagine already pretty well known for its sort of new age community and all of that. It was, um, but definitely we saw a lot of growth and a lot of change in the time we were there. Sure. The, um, yeah. I, as I think I recall, when we first moved there, there was one traffic light in town. And then before a couple of years were out, there were quite a few and now they've taken most of them out and they've put in roundabouts. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, it is. It's beautiful. It's beautiful there. And I imagine the those kinds of open spaces uh, have a lot to do with with your your music, I would say. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, before we moved to Sedona, I was starting to work on the music for the first scenic album when we were still in California. But I was taking a lot of trips out to um, the Mojave Desert, the East Mojave. And um, so that was um, that was kind of how that all started. And then um, when we moved to Sedona, um, I decided I wanted to continue to work with the musicians I had been working with in Scenic. And so the whole time that Scenic was there, it was sort of a, a bi-state band, you know? Sure. And, travel here and do some recording or do some rehearsing or do some shows. And then they would come out to Sedona sometimes and, and we'd work on some music there. So, right. I mean, nowadays it's, it's pretty easy to have a, a remote band in yeah. a lot of ways, but in those days it probably required a little bit more planning and coordinating. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. And, and more travel, but sure. you know, it's interesting flying, from Phoenix to LA a couple of times, uh, I've started taking photographs out the window of the airline and, and that's how we, I ended up with the cover for the third album that we did for scenic, the acid gospel experience, which is, so. I mean, which is a, a beautiful record. I guess that would have turned 20 la last year, maybe 2022. Yeah, I think it, yeah, I think it was 2002 when that was released. Yeah. And, fantastic record. And I, I love the cover. Thanks. 
Well, you know, we are actually we are working on the first vinyl edition of it right now. And I've just as of today approved the test pressing. So Oh, cool. Um, Very cool. I imagine we'll have we'll have those completed in the next couple of months and then we can schedule a release. So we're excited about that. How are you guys finding the sort of uh, vinyl backlog at this point? Do, do things feel like they're more or less moving in a in a more reasonable pace at this point? Yeah, it's it's getting better. Turnaround times seem to be getting better. It was it was a challenge when we first relaunched the label because the um, you know we were finding that back vinyl was backed up eight, nine months. And so we started releasing things on CD and digital first, and then the vinyl later. And now um, with our current distribution arrangement, um, they're encouraging us to release everything all at once. And so that's how we're we're moving forward. Sure, um, sure. Although we do have a, a few things that we're releasing just on CD and not on vinyl at this point, CD and digital. So, Well, I am a fan of, you know, most formats i like a cassette i like uh yeah. i like vinyl you know but i well you can see back here <laughs> there's cassettes and, and cds back there and there's vinyl on the floor I, so. <laughs> yeah absolutely well but one of, one of the things that's so cool about independent project is your guys's cd packaging is so is so cool and i really feel like it speaks to the possibilities of the CD format that it doesn't necessarily have to be quite as um, bound to the kind of small plastic square that is, you know, and I feel like lots of labels, Dust Digital, Numero Group, you know, there's people who make, I, th I think, great compact disc packaging, but you yeah. guys take it to a whole other level. And I really do feel like... Uh, you're doing a great service for the impending <laughs> uh, CD revival whenever that's going to take well, place. Well, that's the intention. I mean, it, it's interesting because I, I resisted CDs when they first came in. And, I, you know, I had I started and I think part of that was just a, re, um, a reaction that I had to the major labels literally trying to kill off vinyl. I mean, it was right. really obvious that they that they were doing this on purpose because they realized they could sell people their whole catalogs again at a higher price. And I thought that was, I don't know, I just didn't appreciate that. So I resisted them, but at the same time, I, you know, I've come over the years to, to realize that, you know, they, they have their place. And I mean, most, I mean, I'll listen to CDs here, but most of the time I'm listening to CDs in my car. Um, when I'm driving and um, I'll listen to vinyl and CDs here and cassettes every once in a while. There's, you know, I buy, there's bands on Bandcamp that are selling cassettes of things that aren't available on any other format. And I, I prefer to listen to it on a physical format than, than through a phone or an iPod. So sure. Sure. My personal taste. So, but anyway, I mean, yeah, you know, when we started doing, CDs again, I just thought I, I want to, the whole idea of independent project was to create records as fine art, create a beautiful piece that is reflective of the quality of the music inside. And so, and I wanted a bigger canvas to work on. And so that's why I decided to do the oversized CD package. And yeah, it's, it's nice. I mean, 
Yeah, it's a challenge. Some of the stores don't don't know what to do with them because they're they don't fit in the racks. But, um, you know, yeah. I mean, as I'm I'm as many of us at Aquarium Drunkard, you've probably got kind of like the the right kind of like box set kind of guys, you know, uh, (laughs) pulling for those, uh, CDs that don't fit properly in the racks. I know exactly, you know, what you mean. Uh, and that is a challenge, but, but at the same time, I think that it's just maybe right now I, I find myself questioning a lot of things. You're somebody who is uniquely qualified to speak to this because you've worked in all of the formats we're talking about and not, just now but i mean you know when they were the only formats that people were dealing with vinyl you know specifically and into the cassette and cd thing but i'm torn in because i want to talk about two things one being that there's a certain kind of music let's call it dream pop or you know ambient or instrumental stuff where the CD format really does suit that kind of long-form listening. I have... One of my favorite records is the John Oswald uh, Gray Folded, which is where he took, I don't know, 50 years of the Grateful Dead playing Dark Star, and he <laughs> he, he streamed it in... He, he, like, created one long performance of Dark Star that just incorporates you know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of versions and he created it as a long form listening piece and i have the vinyl it looks beautiful but it's incongruous when you have to get up and flip the record you know there is something said there is something you know maybe to the idea that certain forms are uh do benefit from that sort of cd format i wonder if that's ever if that's ever been something that plays into your guys's thoughts regarding CDs. Well, we haven't had that many, you know, hour long pieces of music. Sure, <laughs> but, sure. But at the same time, um I mean it's interesting. We're working on a project right now which is a, a retrospective of um early 80s post-punk group After Image, which my a good friend of mine was the singer in that band and and the fellow who went by the name A Produce who we just recently reissued his first solo album. He was the guitarist. Um, and, you know, we're bumping up against, okay, we've got 80 minutes of music that, that you can fit on on a CD. Well, um, the vinyl is going to be two albums and it's going to be like 80 and a half minutes long. <laughs> and right. so we've had to do some a little bit of editing to fit it all on the CD. So, and, you know, it's the same. It's, it's just, yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, it's interesting because, I mean, we do have some projects where we're put, we're doing a vinyl, but we're, the expanded version is coming with a, a bonus CD of demos. It just didn't seem like that material made sense to put on vinyl. Sure. And so a, a CD is a, a nice way to do that, I think. Yeah, so. absolutely. And I, and I think that right now, you know, I, I find myself very curious and, and, and wondering what the next you know, 15 years look like in terms of physical product because, you know, I think valid questions are being raised about, you know, the environmental considerations of creating physical objects for music. Right. 
and i i love physical objects for music you know right. i love that that fine art approach that you're talking about it's it's creating kind of extra context around the the thing but more yeah. and more i guess i am finding myself thinking like well yeah but there aren't any rules about how this works it, it, there's a lot of possibilities, right? You know, like yeah. your and your guys's CD packaging speaks to that. We we do often get locked into patterns about what we're thinking, but I don't know. Maybe there are fine art digital releases someday. You know, I don't I don't know what that would look like or how it works, but maybe there's something there. I don't know. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure either. I mean, I think one of the things that people don't really consider when they're talking about environmental things is what is the, actually the environmental cost of all the rooms of servers that no, hold all of this, certainly. this digital content. Um, but I think more my concern is, is that how easily something that's only digital content could disappear. And just, I mean, I've had a couple of computer crashes in my life that I haven't backed up, you know, and it's just like, that's just, it's gone, you know? Absolutely. Um, absolutely. So I, you know, I like physical stuff. I collected things since I was a kid, you know, and, and that's just what I grew up with. And I know a lot of younger people, um, they're happy with listening to it digitally and having it be maybe a little more ephemeral, but um, well, and and thankfully, the the independent project stuff is available there too, right? You can go, you <laughs> yeah, can go, you can go find it, and you can. What has it been like for you? The because the label kind of uh, fired back up in earnest in 2021. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, um, it was because I reconnected with an old friend of mine, Jeffrey Clark, who was the singer in the band Shiva Burlesque um, in 2019. It was because of the Desolation Center documentary film yeah. that um, uh, my friend Stuart Sweezy put together and that I was involved with uh, somewhat. Um, Jeffrey uh, organized the Nevada City, California Film Festival and so showed the Desolation Center film there. And I ended up going there to represent the film. And so he and I reconnected and we started talking about uh, releasing some things. He was wanting to do some reissues of the, his Shiva burlesque material. And I had other projects I wanted to do. And he said, hey, why don't we just why don't we combine forces and let's let's relaunch your label and and make this happen. And so it's it's due to to his involvement that we're able to to do this. What has so. has the process been exciting? Were you was there any part of you that was, uh, you know, wary of restarting it? Because sometimes it's that feeling of you can't go home again. I mean, was there any concern there? Not on my part. I it's was some. I've I've wanted to devote more time and resources to this all along. But yeah. um, doing it myself all the way back in the in the nineties and and into the early two thousands, I just couldn't sustain it sure. financially. And so I needed to turn my attention to my design work and my letterpress studio. Sure. And so that was my main focus. I did a few releases between say 2002 and 2021, but, um, but realistically until, until he and I reconnected, um, I wasn't in a position to, 
to really do it. Sure. And now I'm pretty much working full time and trying my hardest to keep up. Yeah. <laughs> with, with a n- number of releases that we've uh, committed ourselves to and have on our wish list. It's, uh, um, you know, it's funny because there were so many years that I wasn't doing it, that there were a lot of projects I really wanted to be able to do, but never could. And now we can, if I can manage to pull it all together. So Yeah, yeah. The heat is on, though, of course, because it's, uh, yeah. Yeah. You, you spend all these all these years thinking about what you're going to do, what you would like to do, and then, then you kind of are in the position of doing it. But I mean, it's been great to see stuff roll out. I, the Shiva burlesque stuff was not, um, I wasn't very familiar with that group when I yeah. uh, when I received that CD, but really enjoyed it and thought that the 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 sound was great. I I I feel like I come at the label from the sort of Phoenix shoegaze like scene. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not that I was physically present for that stuff, but it was the generation like you know right before me, and I was able to track that stuff down. And I remember, I guess, when Captured Tracks did the half string reissue in yeah. Maybe that was 2012. I don't know if that's right or whenever it was. Somewhere in there, yeah. Yeah, but it was like it was a really cool thing. And of course, I was familiar with your design work. Um, but then to sort of understand that there was this whole little micro scene in Phoenix, <laughs> and and you yeah. and you were really one of the sort of driving forces. So how did you kind of get turned on to what Half String and groups like Alice and Halo were doing out here? Or how did you guys initially con- uh, connect? Well, when, when I was still in Los Angeles, my mother had moved to Sedona um, in the early 1980s. And so I would go to Sedona to visit her periodically. And I remember one time she said, oh, I've got to know this woman who runs an art gallery here in Sedona, and her daughter has a record store down in Phoenix called Stinkweeds. You should go check it out sometime. And so there was one time that we were making a trip to Sedona, and we drove through Phoenix, and we stopped when Kimber still had her store in Mesa yeah. and introduced ourselves. And and she was selling some cassette tapes by Brandon Capps doing a solo project. And she said, oh, you should listen to this. This guy's doing some really cool stuff. And so I bought the cassette tapes and took them home and told her I really liked them. And then when they got, when she and Brandon got together and started working on Half String, they were coming to Los Angeles, I think, to see some bands play. Maybe it was Ride was playing. I can't remember exactly who it was. But they came by the print shop and dropped off a demo tape three songs that they had recorded and I listened to it and I immediately sent them a postcard and said, we should release this. So, cause it was one of the, I'd been, I'd been wanting to get into do releasing some kind of the shoegaze sounds because I was really enjoying what I was hearing coming out of the UK. Yeah. It was Jeffrey runnings from four against that kept sending me records because he was working at a record store in Lincoln, Nebraska. And he'd like pick up lush and the pale saints and, Moose and you know a lot of these amazing bands and he'd say bruce you should listen to this yeah <laughs> the house of love i think he sent me my first house of love 12 inch so i was really getting into a lot of that music and um and then when half string came along it was the three songs on that eclipse seven inch and it just was like wow this is really good yeah it's unique it's not it, it it's not like what the british are doing but 
it had it's of a you know it, it fits you can, so i was really happy to be able to do that yeah you can absolutely pick up on the connections you know between that and the british thing but part of what makes me so part of what like it gets me so excited about the music of half string is that there is a singular quality to it and it's not it's not uh it's not necessarily emulating the uk thing obviously yeah. drawing inspiration from it but maybe i'm just romantic about it but i also feel like there is a desert sensibility to it in its own way. And that's something that I th I think carries over to so much of your work, the scenic stuff, you yeah. know? And I just wonder, you know, people have such funny... Uh, the desert can sometimes, I think, you, you say something evokes the desert and people immediately think twangy guitars, you know, <laughs> and that sort of thing. And I love that yeah. stuff. I love that does evoke the desert to me. But somehow this stuff does too. And I just wondered if 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 you hear any of that in it, or or how your own engagement with the desert has influenced or informed the character of your your musical explorations. Yeah, um, you know, when I was growing up in, I grew up in West Los Angeles, but my parents, my parents were into gliders and sailplanes and we they owned one for most of the time that i was growing up and so usually once a month we would drive out to the desert and they would fly their sailplane and so my brother and i spent a lot of time in the desert when we were growing up and i so i think i are always kind of felt it was a familiar place to be and then in the early 90s um i started taking trips out to the East Mojave Desert with a little camera that I had um, and started taking pictures of the desert. And I just loved what I was coming up with and was wanting to create, to start doing some very evocative instrumental music. And so that the first scenic album sort of came together as that way, as conceived as a soundtrack for the East Mojave Desert. Yeah. That accompanied my photographs. Yeah. So. Well, well, that's beautiful. We can jump back a little bit to your initial sort of like entry into the Los Angeles punk scene. So when did you, I mean, first off, did you play music before you uh, kind of started things with Savage Republic? What was, <clears throat> what, what were your initial forays into music like? So I, I was um, an art student at UCLA in the late 70s. And it, when the whole punk scene was starting up, I had a few friends in the art department that were start they were going to see gigs at the clubs in Hollywood. And I took a photography class and I decided I would go, go to these clubs to take photographs, that that would be my thing. And yeah. so um, I still had shoulder length hair at that point. So, and so I got razzed a little bit here and there, but um, they thought you were a, a hippie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I made a mistake of going to the whiskey to a, a some punk show and, you know, wearing a, a Pink Floyd t-shirt and um, shoulder length hair. And, you know, in the middle of one song, this little punkette with pink hair comes up to me with a big marker and starts Xing out my t-shirt like this. Yeah. And I grabbed her hand and was like pushing her away. Like, no, you're fucking my t-shirt. And this guy with her said, 
oh, let her do it. And so I was just like, okay, she's already wrecked a shirt, whatever. And she kind of exited out and grabbed my hair and shook it and danced away. And I was like, okay, I guess I better cut my hair now. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, I, you know, I was going to see these, these gigs and I, I thought, well, wow, it would be fun to be up there, but I couldn't, I just, I didn't play an instrument. I didn't know. Didn't feel like I could do that. And it was the No New York album that uh, Brian Eno produced of the No Wave bands from New York. Yeah. And I think it was Mars and DNA on the B side that just blew my mind. And especially DNA, it was kind of like there were these simple, repetitive things that just fit together. And something clicked in my head and was like, I could do that. Yeah. Yeah. And I went out and bought a guitar and a cheap amp. Yeah. So, So I started... So that was in 1979, I believe, when I bought the first guitar and amp and I started experimenting. And I ended up running into other friends um, in art classes who were starting to experiment with a band that they had called Neath. And so I asked them if I could join them. And we just, yeah, that was my first experience recording music. They were friends with the urinals who were a arty punk band from UCLA. Yeah. And you know, the urinals made a single and there it was in tower of sunset, you know, <laughs> and I was like, wow, that would be fun to do. And so we all decided to make a single too. And we just pressed up. I think we, we each put in $40. So we had $200 and we got 163 singles back. Wow. And that was our first release. Did you do the art for that first release? I didn't do the art for that one, um, but I liked the idea so much that I decided to do my own record. And at that time, um, UCLA had what they called an independent project course where you could design your own course and find an instructor who would be your, your advisor. And so I did that. I signed up and I said, I want to make a record as fine art. And, I, and it was Project 197 because the course number was 197. So that yeah. was what it was. And, I, you know, I just thought, I'm just going to do this one. I didn't know I was going to do any more, but I figured I needed a record label name. Well, what is this? It's an independent project record. So there we have it. Wow. That's perfect. That's perfect. And then, yeah. And then I finished it and I was like, that was fun. I'm going to do another one. And so and- that was how it all started. <laughs> so when did the letterpress enter enter into the actual the process? I understand that you connected that would have been like 82 a couple years later yeah. maybe. Yeah. Yeah, the first few I mean I was just early on I did I did 3 7-inch singles and I tried to do something unique on each one of those. And then um the band that became Savage Republic, we were working on recording an album. We thought at that point we thought well, everybody's doing singles. We should record an album. We've got enough good material. So we were recording this and I wanted to do some sort of artistic way of um, producing the package. And I ran across a class um, at the Women's Graphic Center in downtown Los Angeles in offset lithography. And I signed up for that. And But not enough people signed up for it. And so uh, it was canceled. But the teacher said, oh, well, we're doing this letterpress class. You could sign up for that. And I had no idea what letterpress was, but I thought, okay, I'll sign up for that. So they taught us how to print on a small platen press um, and we printed a postcard. So I printed a postcard advertising the first album from Africa Corps coming soon, which is what we called ourselves before Savage Republic. 
But while I was there working on that, I noticed they had a big flatbed press that had 18 by 24 inch bed. And I thought, well, that's the perfect size for an album cover. So I said, if I took the class again, would you teach me how to use that press? She said, sure. So I took the class a second time and printed a thousand album jackets in the class. Wow. And that was, that was the beginning. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so were you immediately drawn to the process? I mean, I mean, when, when something like that happens, you know, and you feel a strong affinity for it, I mean, it can feel yeah. sort of like a, like destiny or whatever. And I wonder if that's how it felt. <laughs> Kind of. I mean, I think it was it was more that I realized, you know, I had done some soak screening when I was in college. And sure. so and I liked the process, but it was messy and stinky. And and I, I saw the letterpress as a way that I could do a large quantity of something and it would still feel handmade. And to me, that was the perfect marriage of art and commerce, you know? Yeah. And, so, yeah, it just felt like, wow, this is great. I, there's so much I can do with this process that I just started, you know, doing more album jackets and making letterheads for myself and, you know, how, cards. Yeah. How soon was it before other artists or other uh, labels started reaching out to you saying, hey, could you make something for us or we've got... It was. It, it, it didn't take long. I mean, basically, I had friends in other bands that said, oh, do us one, you know, like um, 17 Pygmies, which was an offshoot of Savage Republic. For their first EP, they they hired me to print the cover. And I printed the, the next album cover for them, too. And then John Talley Jones from The Urinals. We ended up doing a couple projects for his Happy Squid Records label. Um, so, yeah, it didn't... It, you know, within six months, probably of that first Savage Republic album coming out, I was doing jackets for friends in other bands. Do you remember any sense of being pulled in different directions, you know, wanting to devote time to music, wanting to obviously create art, or did they feel pretty uh, symbiotic to you quickly? I mean, what was that? What was that like? I think, um, they, I mean, they definitely felt like they went together to me. Um, I, I mean, obviously the, the push pull was between making a living and doing the art and music that you want to do, you sure. know, and so all that time, uh, you know, the first number of years I, I had jobs that I had, you know, that I went to for 30 hours a week or whatever, just to pay the rent. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. So it wasn't that you were at, at least right at first, it wasn't like letterpress was paying the bills. It took a, it took a little while right. before that became the case. Yeah, Wh it did. It was probably the mid mid eighties before I was really earning enough to, to, to survive doing the letterpress. Do you feel like there was any single project that sort of felt like a like a breakout moment for you in terms of letter pressing specifically? Well, you know, it's interesting because that first Savage Republic album, uh, Tragic Figures, is so iconic in in its packaging. I right. mean, I, in some ways, I I feel like I haven't I haven't eclipsed it since then. <laughs> Although uh, the first For Against album, the Echelon's letterpress edition that I did, that was the first one where I, I 
purposefully decided I was make going all out to make a, a fine art uh, piece. And that was, you know, six or seven runs on the jacket, five, five color labels, three color inner sleeves. Uh, I mean, it was kind of nuts, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> but it's beautiful. And I got nominated for a Grammy award for best album package for it. So in a way it's like, okay, that's what that one was for, you know? In those days, would you go to the Grammys for the album packaging stuff, or or was it similar? So, now I think they do it before the show or something. Yeah, it's it, it. This particular one, the album is always before the televised part. Um, when I was nominated for the four against that year, they held them in New York. I got invited, but I was like, I can't afford a trip to New York right now. So, yeah. Yeah. um, but I ended up being nominated a second time the next year for the camper van Beethoven, our beloved revolutionary sweetheart album that I did for Virgin records. Um, I didn't even know that they had put it in, but the art director at Virgin entered it and I got nominated. So that year it was in Los Angeles and my wife and I went and, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, you're in a, like a hat, you're an 80% empty hall, you know, and they're just like running through it really fast. Yeah. And we're sitting there waiting for this one. And my wife's looking at me like, aren't you nervous? <laughs> and I'm like, do you know what you're going to say if you get it? And I'm like, no, <laughs> I didn't get it. Yeah. Putting your music up online is not always the easiest thing in the world to figure out, but DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and, as an artist, you keep 100% of your royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to get their music into Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, all the major streaming services. You can use it to edit your lyrics and your song credits. So important in the internet age to let people know the kind of people you're collaborating with. And uh, DistroKid makes that easy. You can also see all your stats from the streamers and, of course, add a credit card to purchase album extras. The DistroKid app is available now on iOS and Android. Go to the app or Play Store to download it. It was all, you didn't have to worry about it. You didn't have to yeah, deliver then, a speech. <laughs> and then they finished all the early stuff. And then there's like, okay, you have to get out of these seats now because we got important people coming in. You know? <laughs> oh, the music. So we just left. The music industry. Oh. Yeah. Go get some dinner or something. Yeah. <laughs> industry stuff <laughs> yeah yeah well so how did the the stuff with rem the fan club singles how did you get connected with them was that a thing where you had crossed paths with them on the sort of independent music circuit as well mm, not really um i it was sort of like just getting contacted from the rem office out of the blue i think it was 88 or 89 somewhere in there and they just said um, could we hire you to print uh, a Christmas card for our fan club package? And that the first year that I worked with them, I just did a, did their <clears throat> Christmas card. Um, and I, then I found out later that, you know, apparently Peter Buck and Michael and were big fans of the work that I'd done. And 
supposedly Peter had a, a whole wall of his house with independent project stuff on it. People had told me that. So I was like, oh, wow, this is nice. I didn't, I had no idea, you know? Yeah. Um, and then I think the following year they did something else. And then they came back in 1990, I think it was, and said, we'd like you to do the whole package. And there, you know, it was really good for a number of years where we did the whole package. And then eventually it sort of evolved into, um, uh, where we were just printing some things that were sent to us that were designed in house. And then they shifted to something else. I think they, they just, you know, it was expensive to do it the way we did it. But at the same time, I remember, um, meeting up with Peter Buck, um, probably would have been 1988 when Savage Republic played in London. He happened to be in London and he came to the show and he told me that he just he was just so thrilled with the work that we were doing for their fan club. He's like, you know, I just love the idea that people can pay 10 bucks for this this fan club membership and then get something that's worth way more than that. Yeah. Yeah. Back. So, yeah, that's for them. It was like, you know, yeah, this is a gift to our fans. So that's really that's really cool. And I mean, it's such a it's such a. I think about the all all the work that I see from you has this yeah there's a quality to it that that does feel like if I signed up for a fan club and that's what I'm getting you know it's like <laughs> somebody gives a shit you know what I mean like th yeah. this is this there's care involved in this it's not like a uh it's not like a half-baked, half-thought-out sort of thing. So, I mean, obviously, like you said, time-intensive and, and potentially kind of uh, expensive to produce stuff like that. Yeah. But, but yeah, there really is something something to it that I think is so... that, that gives it that lasting quality. You mentioned that you were a collector as a kid of, of stuff, and I wonder... What items were you collecting? Were you a were you a stamp collector? Obviously, stamps. stamps yeah, yes. yeah. My mother got got uh, my brother and I collecting stamps when I was about eight years old, and I always uh, was very fascinated by the you know the faraway cultures that were pictured on the on the stamps. Um, Hot Wheels, yeah, big Hot Wheels collector from when I was a kid, and. Um, you know, I had a few other small collections, uh, but nothing. It was mostly stamps and Hot Wheels as a kid. And then I think as a teenager, I started collecting records. It was, um, you know, started off just listening to the local Top 30 station um, in Los Angeles. It was Top 30 back then, not Top 40. Right. But, yeah. 10 less. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they add 10 every however many decades, you know, it eventually it'll be the Top right. 60 or whatever. Yeah. So yeah, but I remember it's like the first the first record I ever bought with my own money was a Bobby Sherman single, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and I, so I was really into the you know the whole '70s pop stuff. I missed the '60s because I didn't start listening to the radio until I was 12 years old in 1970. So in a way, it's been fun the last few decades to go back and and discover all of this amazing, uh, obscure independent music from the '60s that you know yeah got buried there's a phenomenal amount of incredible music from that era you mentioned wearing a pink floyd shirt to the uh to the punk show what was uh was that the sort of stuff that you 
became interested in as you became a, a young record buyer? Were you buying, you know, prog type stuff or art rock? Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, probably when, when I was in high school, I had an older brother that was a few years older than me. And when he went off to college, I ended up with, you know, a chunk of his record collection. And so of course there was Pink Floyd and Genesis. And uh, I mean, actually he, he had Hawkwind and Amon Duel too. And, and a lot of cool progressive and stuff. And so I was really got immersed in that when I was probably 15, 16. And, um, and so the shirt I was wearing was from the animals tour in 1977. I went to go see them at this big stadium in orange County and bought a shirt. So pretty, pretty, pretty good show. It was, um, it was the first show that I'd ever been that was in that big of a, a space. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it was, it was kind of intimidating because I just, I didn't have any friends that wanted to go see that with me. So I just went by myself and wandered around the field, uh, and finally towards the end decided I'd try to get up close to the front and, you know, people were packed in so tightly that, you know, the crowd would move and you'd go with them. You'd, and I sure. was kind of like, I don't know if this is a really safe place to be. So I didn't stay up there too long. <laughs> you you mentioned, obviously, just some incredible stuff that you inherited from your brother, Amandul, Hawkwind. Yeah. These album covers, I mean, the album covers of that era really, truly are transportive. They They feel like coming out of the the counterculture of the late 60s where iconography and uh uh creating a a sort of visual world for your band became m- much more important you know and 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 by the time you get to that point in the 70s it's audacious right i mean i think about these pink floyd album covers and i remember being a kid and just see you see a I don't know, you see a, a, a Genesis album cover and it feels like it's a big deal, you know? I mean, yeah. a Yes album yeah. cover, you're like, oh, I feel like I I want to watch a movie <laughs> about whatever this planet is, you know what I mean? Yeah, yep, definitely. So so you were so you you were kind of struck by the visual the visual tone of these things. Oh yeah. That was that yeah. was an important thing. Yeah. Yeah. As you got into the sort of more punk stuff, did you find um cuz I I feel like without um without evoking anything like a pink floyd album cover or a, even a hawkwind cover it's not like that's what your art you know does but it does have a concept there's a conceptual element to what you do and i wonder if for you did the visual look of punk uh resonate with you or did you kind of find yourself wanting to some of it did I, I think I, I resonated more with kind of the the minimal utilitarian feel. I wasn't too into the whole cutout letters and sure. and torn Xerox stuff. You know, I I, I think I I definitely responded. I think in terms of artwork wise, I definitely responded to like the early Factory Records releases. Uh, the industrial records releases like those early throbbing gristle singles and things like that, that just had to start rect, you know, rectangular stuff, but imagery, I, I responded quite a bit to that. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, and so I think in a sense, I was uh, probably the first few s- singles that I did, I was trying to, to um, come up with something along those lines with the Xerox covers that I was doing. But, you know, when the letterpress came along, that just took it all in a whole different direction. It was just like, this is an amazing process. We've got this chipboard and you can go, you can put light colors and dark colors on it. And you've got this whole three-dimensional thing yeah. that you can do that, that isn't possible any other way. Yeah. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons that I've stuck with letterpress and like it so much is that you, there are things you can do with letterpress that are literally not possible to do any with any other printing process. And I like that. So you've had work that you've done, you know, like, I, th- I guess I'm thinking of the sort of like the, the scritty Politi, uh, album yeah, where you're creating a piece and then it's being sort of mass produced. And, and I wondered if that ever, if you ever felt like there was a sort of compromise in terms of that sort of thing, or if you just didn't mind that because you were able to create your piece and then it could just be you know, recreated in a, in a less, you know, ornate fashion, but nonetheless still contain the character of your work. Right. Well, you know, the interesting thing about the Scritti Politi thing is I did get to produce um, a limited edition version of the seven inch single that was letterpress printed. And then they reproduced that for the, um, for a larger edition. Um, You know, I recognize that you can only, stand there at the printing press and run so many no, of them for through sure, for sure. and, um, and keep within the budget. Um, so I'm completely fine with that whole scenario, especially because they were paying me really well, you know, hard to um, argue. Yeah. The interesting thing was, is that the job that, that paid for us to move to Sedona in 1992 was a box set that we did for, uh, Hank Williams, Jr. For, someone at Warner Brothers hired us to do that. And it was, we had all of these different pieces to create and it was all going to be reproduced by offset lithography. So it was just like, well, they just needed a good proof that they could photograph. And then, so we had thousands of dollars worth of printing plates that we bought and each printing plate was on the press for maybe a half hour at the most. And then we pull it off and do the next and so I just, I looked at that and I just thought, wow, there's so much money that is being spent on these projects. And I remember when I first got that, I had some friends that worked at, at Warner Brothers in the art department. I think it was, um, it was Steve Gertis, who was the bass player in the band Four Way Cross. Mm. He was working there at the time. And it, it was probably because he showed some of my work to some of the other art directors that they invited me to come in and show my, my stuff. And, um, but yeah, I remember him while I was there saying, oh yeah, here's, we just spent $20,000 on this photo shoot that they're scrapping and we're doing it again. But I was like, I could put five records out with that. Yeah. <laughs> no kidding. I mean, you're talking about this sort of like the eighties into the nineties. I mean, truly the, the, yeah. the, the crazy money days of the music industry yeah. where the amount it's changed so much. It's not that there's still not, you know, massive spending yeah. or whatever, but just the scale, very, very different. And, you know, it's, it's crazy to think about that, but yeah, it is, but for what you guys are doing with the label is, you know, 
you're able to do these smaller editions and really represent this stuff so well. It's really it's it's really fascinating that that you've been able to help I think refocus the 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 light on on this work because it really does put it put puts it forward in a really cool in a really cool fashion. Well, good. It's what we're trying to do. Well, and <laughs> and and so uh, I guess to, before before we wrap up, I, I wanted to ask what you're working on musically now. Are you are you working on any projects yourself? I am. Um, you know, over the the years, I've I've done a lot of demo recording of some solo material as well as with other other people and so a number of various pieces of that are you know samples of that are on the tape excavation Mm -hmm. uh, cd expanded cd that we just did um but the last track on that release by sr2 that is my current musical project and um it's a collaboration with my wife uh karen and um she plays the rhythm guitar and i play the lead guitar We've worked with a couple of drummers here in in Bishop, and we've done some performances. It's been a while since we have, but we are gearing back up to um, to working on the music and and with a goal to do some recording. We have we have well over an album's worth of material to record at this point, so we're starting to try to plot that out. Um, we've got a. Um, a warehouse space behind the print shop for the record label. And there's, there's a part of that portion of that we've set up as a, as a music rehearsal area. So um, we will probably be recording some demos in there uh, later this year. And with a goal to get the material ready to go into the studio, basically needing to find a a bass player and a drummer to work with, but that's in progress. Nice. Nice. um, We did one, there was one performance that we did in March of 2020, just before everything shut down. There was uh, the Savage Impressions book of my design work yeah. was released in February of 2020. We did an in-store performance at Arcana Books in Culver City, uh, where Karen and I played five of our songs, just the two of us on guitars. And there was somebody sitting there who taped it all on, who videoed it on their iPhone and posted it on YouTube. So it's all there. If you want to go search for me, my name at Arcana Books, and you will find the, the music. I, so. I definitely will. And I'll look forward to doing that. Uh, Bruce, yeah. thank you so much for taking the time to chat and to, to yeah, walk pleasure. me through. It was really great getting thank to you. speak with you. I appreciate all your patience and our back and forth too. Thank you. Okay. No worries. All right. All right. Be well. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for tuning in. Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions is brought to you by our Patreon supporters and is part of the TalkHouse Podcast Network. I'm Jason P. Woodbury. I write, host, and produce the show. Andrew Horton edits our audio, and Dakota Brown creates graphics and art. Transmissions is executive produced by Justin Gage. Don't miss his long-running radio program, The Aquarium Drunkard Show, on Sirius XMU Channel 35, each and every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. California time. We will be back next week with a very loose chat indeed, my hang with the modern folk. Be well until then. This transmission is concluded.